Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of learning. I'm Ryan Radzeski, here with Greg Baer. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning practices in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Ralph Smith, Managing Director of the Campaign for Grade Level Reading. Since 2010, Smith has been bringing folks together to disrupt generational poverty by helping to ensure that every child reaches the critical developmental milestone of reading on grade level by the end of the third grade. Before that, Ralph taught law at the University of Pennsylvania and served as the Philadelphia School District's Chief of Staff. Ralph, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Delighted to be able to join you today. Thank you for inviting me. Ralph, the Campaign for Grade Level Reading describes itself as a sort of big tent movement to raise awareness of the importance of literacy and reading proficiency, particularly at one critical juncture, the end of the third grade. So let's start there. Why, out of all the milestones in a human being's life, is the third grade year so important? And how does ensuring literacy by that point help disrupt generational poverty? The Campaign for Grade Level Reading puts at the top of the list this disrupting of generational poverty because generational poverty is the super spreader and the epicenter of most of the inequitable outcomes we see. Generational poverty is what condemns a large number of children on the day they're born to a lifetime where they will spend most of their childhood in poverty as teenagers and young adults will parent children who also will spend their lives in poverty. We can predict with an alarming degree of accuracy who those children are, where they live, and the bleak prospects for their future. And so if we care about those children, we've got to care about poverty, and we've got to do what we can to allow those children an opportunity to escape poverty. And what we know from Sawhill and Haskins and a lot of folks who have looked at this is that you can escape poverty, and the first real step in that ladder out of poverty is high school graduation. And as we look at high school graduation, we find that there's an inflection point. There's a point at which we can predict which children will graduate and which will not. And that point is reading proficiency at the end of third grade. The research tells us that kids who read proficiently at the end of third grade tend to graduate from high school, and children who don't read proficiently at the end of third grade are increasingly unlikely to graduate from high school, including low-income children. And what we find, what the data tell us, is that 80% of low-income kids miss that milestone. 80% of kids who are in or close to poverty today do not read on grade level by the end of third grade and are in fact highly likely to be trapped in the same cycle of poverty as their parents were. And we know that just by age nine. Yes. 
Wow. Ralph, can you give us a sense of how the campaign sort of coalesced around this issue? I read that you call yourself a recovering law professor. I know there are lots of other people and organizations involved. I'm wondering what are some of the key things they're doing to help move the needle and ensure that more third grade readers are reading proficiently? What we tried to do was to look at this inflection point and ask ourselves, who are these kids? What do we know about them besides the fact that they're the children of economically challenged families? And what we found is that a large and growing number of those children are children who are falling beyond the reach of schools. And that's a scary thought. There are three characteristics of those kids. One, these are children who start school already so far behind that it's unlikely that they're going to catch up by the time they get to third grade. Secondly, these are children who already behind fall farther behind during the school year because they're missing so many days of school that it really doesn't matter if there's a great teacher with high quality instruction and an inspiring curriculum because those kids aren't there often enough to get the full benefit of it. And the third group of kids were those kids that we knew would fall behind and lose ground over the summer, that the two months, eight to 10 weeks was for those children a summer slide and they would return to school in September, farther behind than when they left in June. And so that combination of starting out behind, falling farther behind because of chronic absence, and yet farther behind because of the summer slide, that combination doomed a large and growing number of kids in terms of their ability to reach grade level proficiency by the end of third grade. So by putting that together and helping communities to look, they were able to identify which kids were already behind, which kids were falling behind because of chronic absence, and which kids were getting on the summer slide. And we invited and encouraged communities to figure out how they would get more of those children ready for school, how they would help families get those kids showing up to school every day, and how they would organize over the summer to make sure that kids experience summer learning and not summer learning loss. How does a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania find himself moved into this work? That's a story too long to tell, <laughs> but when I had an opportunity to represent the school district of Philadelphia in a desegregation case with the leadership of the superintendent of the school district, we were able to persuade Human Relations Commission in Pennsylvania and the court that the school district have an undereducated generation of children who were now in racially isolated, low-performing schools, that the remedy to that undereducation was not transportation, but was a commitment 
to educate those kids, we got the court to agree with that proposition. And I agreed to stick around after the case was settled to assist with the implementation of the court order. And over the next three years, I had the opportunity to see that, in fact, you could change the trajectory of the lives of young children if you took seriously the obligation to educate them. And once you see that change happen in 42 schools in a large school district with good leadership at the administration, good leadership at the school level, strong teaching, you get bitten by the bug and it's really impossible to go back home. And that uh, changed the trajectory of my own career. This is Greg Bear along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with the extraordinary Ralph Smith, Managing Director of the Campaign for Grade Level Reading. Ralph, as we record this, we're in the sort of in-between phase where the pandemic is still very much with us, while also beginning to wind down. The inequities that have existed for far too long are wider than they've ever been. And at the same time, we have this enormous opportunity to do things differently. We've both said that if this pandemic has taught us anything, is that what was normal yesterday doesn't have to define tomorrow. So what are some of the systemic societal changes you want to see in the coming months and years? We now have more children on the more vulnerable side of an achievement gap and an opportunity gap that both have in the past 14 months grown from gaps to chasms. And going back to the status quo is totally insufficient because that was a status quo that left too many kids falling beyond the reach of schools. So we have to figure out how to deal with the current level of learning loss of a magnitude we've never seen and promote an accelerated learning recovery for a larger number of children. And we can't do that by asking schools to do it by themselves. And we can't ask it by asking schools to do what they've always done because what they've always done has not worked for the children of economically challenged families. So we've got to commit to slowing and stopping the learning loss. We've got to commit to accelerating learning recovery. And we've got to focus on the disproportionate effect that COVID-19 has had on children of economically challenged families. What that means is we've got to acknowledge and deal with the digital equity gap. We have a large number of children who still are not living in households that are online and households that have enough devices so they could actually derive any benefit from the instruction which is now online. We have a large number of children who are living in households where even if they got online and have devices, the adults have no idea how to use those devices and how to use that access to help their kids which means in addition to dealing with the connectivity issue, we have got to figure out how to 
support and equip the parents and caregivers of these kids to actually be essential partners with the teachers. We're going to have to figure out how to help connect these kids with the high dosage tutoring, the one-on-one, one-on-two tutoring that they're going to need if they have any prayer of catching up. And we're going to have to figure out what the alternative learning places and spaces will be outside the home for those kids whose parents are essential workers and can't stay home, whether on a long-term basis or even on an episodic basis if a school closes because there are too many COVID reports at the school at any particular point in time. We've got to do all that with some sense of urgency. And as we look toward the future, Greg, it's going to be really important that we change our practice so that we can have more high-touch and high-tech. We need the technology that's currently available so that we can get accurate diagnostics of where each child is and where we can develop differentiated instructional programs that's child-specific. We are now at a time when personalized learning is not just an aspiration, it has to become a reality for a large number of children. We're gonna see in communities an effort to make culture change that we're calling learning happens everywhere, where organizations, institutions, libraries, playgrounds, supermarkets, laundromats, every place where kids and parents show up can be transformed into a learning-rich environment designed to reinforce what teachers and schools and parents are trying to do. That kind of transformation in communities is what will be necessary if we're to avoid losing a generation of children simply because their parents are poor, economically challenged, or essential workers. Ralph, we appreciate the clarity that you've just provided. You've given a tremendous roadmap for legislators in places like Harrisburg and Raleigh and Sacramento to focus on connectivity as infrastructure, to focus on policies that advance high dosage tutoring, as you describe, and policies that also enrich the learning landscape and really connect multiple sites of learning in ways that are constructive and helpful to learners and their educators. And you mentioned relationships. We really commit to that culture of caring adults as being ones who support kids in that rich environment that we create where learning happens everywhere. Ryan? Yeah, then that leads to my question. Ralph, for our listeners who are hearing this and maybe learning about the importance of third grade reading proficiency for the first time uh, and want to get involved, whether it's getting involved with the campaign for grade level reading or getting involved in a child's life, what do you recommend they do? I'm curious about what needs you're seeing from you know your position as the campaign's director. You know, that's a great question because there really is an opportunity for everyone to get involved. And we begin at the basic level, and that is for us all to see ourselves 
and to see every interaction and transaction with a young child as a teachable moment, as an opportunity that could transform the life, the expectations, the aspiration, and the future of your children. We need to turn ourselves into what Dana Susskind is calling a parent nation, where we all accept the responsibility for the next generation. Specifically within communities, this notion of making sure that young kids are ready for school, it's really about finding ways to acknowledge the importance of early brain development and the role that parents and caregivers have in respect to the developing brain and figuring out how we support them how we encourage them, how we create high-five moments for those parents. It's really understanding that parenting is the hardest job for which none of us were really prepared, that we've got to give parents grace, and we've got to give them support, and we've got to find ways to make sure our institutions aren't committed to the runaround, end-to-run workarounds that we usually have to sideline parents. If anything, this pandemic should help us understand that at the end of the day, at the end of the road, we are very much dependent on parents being ready, prepared, equipped, and supported to do their jobs. I love that idea of creating more high five moments. I think that's something we could all use more of. And more grace. Ralph, how can people find out more about the work you're doing? In virtually every community, there's a community foundation and a United Way and a family foundation and a public library that's doing a great job. For the campaign for grade level reading, you can find us at gradelevelreading.net. But what we do is we support the efforts in local communities And what we know is even if a local community is not directly connected to the campaign, there are folks in that community, there are organizations in that community, there are local funders in that community that are working hard today to support the schools and support the educators who themselves are committed to doing more for and better by the children that have been committed to their care. Ralph, before we go, just one last question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? I think it is really going back to the deep appreciation for the challenging role that parents have in front of them as they respond to the task of creating better, brighter, more hopeful futures for their kids, and a commitment on all of us to do whatever we can to practice empathy and afford grace to parents who are taking on this really important work and to support the partnership between those parents and the educators whose job it is to work 
with those kids and with those parents. I say this and I repeat this because our job, our aspiration should be more hopeful futures for each and every one of those children. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning, a Pittsburgh-based network of people and organizations that ignite engaging, relevant, and equitable learning practices in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. Learn more at remakelearning.org slash tomorrow.